Tanse. That's Hello and Cree. Welcome to Catching Frogs. I'm Wendy Stewart. Thanks for joining me today. I'm grateful to the Canada Council for the Arts for their support of this project on my journey to reconnect with my Cree and Métis roots and to revisit the history of Canada through the lens of Indigenous women and their significant contribution. But none of this would be possible had it not been for the tireless commitment of Donna Sutherland, my second cousin, and the 10 years of her dedicated research. We begin. We must jump back in time a bit to 1815 to reconnect with William Sinclair and what he was up to during the time I was focusing on Colin Robertson's journals and adventures. William was on his way back to York Factory from the Orkneys in 1815, having boarded the Hadlow at Strumness on July 17th, along with 84 settlers, the last group bound for Red River, and with Robert Semple, the new governor of the colony, whose annual salary was £1,500, and whom we have just discussed at length. William had 51 days for opportunities of conversation with the new governor to hear his view of the future of the Red River and the Hudson's Bay Company and perhaps William's future. They arrived at York Factory August 27th. William was listed as Inland Master, a demotion assigned to Knee Lake, It was quite an arrival in York Factory, always a busy place, a relief and a happy celebration when the ship arrived with supplies and people. Thukach was there, Nahue's mother, as her name appears in the account book for having made some purchases at the same time. William had been away from the bay for a year, and my guess is it was a welcome return for him. His health improved, or so he thought, having taken care of his personal business back in Orkney. It seems likely that William went to Oxford House to see his family upon his arrival. The York Factory Post Journal, listed as B.239-1-121, shows the settlers who had arrived on the Hadlow set off for the colony on September 6, 1815. William and James Sutherland embarked on September 19th, their canoes filled with supplies for the coming winter. William doesn't make his first entry in the Knee Lake Post Journal until October 1st. The journal for Knee Lake is filed in the Hudson's Bay Company archives as B.101-A-1. The first entry is William's arrival at Knee Lake, October 1st, 1815 at 7 p.m. He and ten men were to winter there. A depot was to be erected and there were two small houses partially finished which had been built during the summer. On October 6th, Governor Semple and Mr. Thomas arrived in one boat on their way to the settlement after departing York Factory on September 23rd. They departed the next day, and William went to Oxford House to see his family, arriving back to Knee Lake on October 8th. Construction was underway at Knee Lake, and by October 9th they were laying floors and building chimneys. By October 25th, the lake was taking fast with ice, so they took up their nets from the lake. Once the ice was firm, on October 28th, they set their nets under the ice. On November 18th, they were cutting grass for building the chimney. They had to tear down the first chimney they built in the house as it was too smoky, quote, obliged to pull it down and build the chimney half up again, end quote. On November 25th, since arriving, 
they cut down 300 logs of sizes and only managed to catch 46 fish in 10 nets, despite searching for better fishing sites. December 2nd, an Indian youth and two men arrived from Oxford House, ordered to spend the winter at Knee Lake, but William's supplies were limited and he sent them back to Oxford House. December 17th, William wrote, An Indian boy came to the house with nothing. He and his mother have their lodge a little distance up the lake. On December 18th, William went 25 miles up the lake to where some Indians were tenting to find out if they had seen any caribou. They explained to him that they had been away from their families for five days and returned without seeing a single track of any animal. William and his men spent the winter building, and William traveled back and forth to Oxford House as he was able, the Trout River joining the two lakes. Food was scarce. Three Indians stopped at Knee Lake on January 7, 1816, on their way to God's Lake, about 40 to 50 miles away, to angle trout for their starving families. They returned on January 27 with three trout weighing 72 pounds to give to William another example of their willingness to share food. He engaged one of them to pilot three of his men to God's Lake on February 14th. The men returned a week later with two sleds loaded with 210 pounds of fine trout. They returned on February 22nd with dogs and sleds to bring more of the fish, and then on the 27th they returned with 270 pounds of trout. William wrote they were much in want of dogs, only three very small ones. March 10th, the men returned with 330 pounds of trout, and they were nearly exhausted by the time they reached the house due to the difficulty in traveling. They continued to haul trout from God's Lake until mid-April, after which the lake was covered with water and travel was too dangerous. Food provisions began to improve. William sent a packet of letters to York on April 10th. April 17th, three men were not fit for duty, two were snow-blind, and the other with a sore back. On April 22nd, William recorded seeing the first swan. The ice on the lake was covered all over with water, which made hauling anything almost impossible and dangerous. He began laying the ground frame of the storehouse, which was 90 feet by 25 feet, on April 26th. Lots of traffic in and out of Knee Lake the summer of 1816. When the men returned from York, they brought the news of the death of Phoebe's youngest daughter. Phoebe was the firstborn child of Nahoe and William. The York Factory Journal records on March 15, 1816, quote, Mr. Bunn's youngest child died at 11 a.m., aged 16 months. William traveled by dog sled to Oxford House to give the news to Nahoy. On June 23rd, one of the men brought home a stick for a flagstaff. On July 1st, Mr. Bird arrived with one boat. Colin Robertson, Logan Devine, arrived in two canoes from the colony. He recorded on July 8th, quote, at 6 p.m., the canoe that was sent with express to Lake Winnipeg arrived and brought the melancholy news of the governor, quote, Mr. Semple and five officers and 16 men have been murdered by Canadians in the plains near the forks of Red River, end quote. That was the Seven Oaks Massacre. 
I take note of the news shared amongst the Hudson's Bay Company men was that the Northwest Company men, or Canadians as they were called, had done the murdering, not the Métis. On July 19th, Mr. Robertson arrived in a small canoe, stopped for an hour, and proceeded on to Jack River. On August 8th, a colony boat arrived here from the factory with provisions. July 26th, boat from York on its way to Jack River. August 3rd, went with six men in Indian lad to Swampy Lake to build a small house to lodge in and to clear the ground where depot is to be built. August 8th, a colony boat arrived here from the factory with provisions. August 18th, Mr. Logan with men in three boats arrived at the depot, to whom I delivered up the charge. This was the last journal entry at Knee Lake for William. Nahue gave birth to her youngest and 11th child on August 12, 1816. William was away at Knee Lake. Nahue had not yet named her son as she was busy tending to her sick 10-year-old daughter. Colin Robertson arrived at Oxford House on August 24 at 9 a.m. He wrote the following news in his journal. Yesterday, Mrs. Sinclair's child died of an inflammation in the throat and she sent to know if I would be kind enough to read a funeral service over the corpse. I agreed, but my associates stated some objections on the score the child had not been baptized. The poor woman did not understand these nice points in theology, but she loved her child, and she thought the service was a sufficient passport to heaven for the innocent object of her affections. I thought so too, and took the prayer book and read the service." The silent thanks of an affectionate parent removed all the scruples which my colleagues, with their overflowing zeal, endeavored to impress on my mind. End quote. Robertson left Oxford House about 10 a.m. Mrs. Sinclair's son embarked with me to join his father at York. End quote. The child who died was Nahoy's youngest daughter, and we don't know her name, just that she was 10 years old. She is buried at the site of Oxford House. Nahoy named her youngest child Colin Robertson Sinclair to honor the great kindness that he bestowed on her, a man who ignored the man-made trappings of religion to comfort a grieving mother. The name Colin has been included in every generation since, landing on my maternal grandfather, Walter Colin Young Sutherland, born in 1886. This is why I had to know more about Colin Robertson. Robertson arrived at York on August 29, 1816, at 2 p.m. with William's son. Robertson informed William of the passing of his young daughter. There was no ship, and Robertson had no word from family or friends in two years and three months since he sailed from England. That fact distressed him. In his journal, he wrote of building roads where the land is perfectly level and on the borders of lakes can be found excellent hay in abundance and wouldn't have to wait for the waterways to open in the spring. Goods would come by boat as soon as the ship had arrived, taken as far as the first portage, and then in the winter transported by sled to a depot like Oxford House. From 1828 to 1830, 
Robertson did oversee the building of a winter road from York Factory to Norway House, his vision a reality. But that was yet to come. He wrote of having Mr. Pritchett's journal of his travels from Montreal, showing the distance from Fox River to Oxford Lake as 148 miles. But, quote, that is following the winding river. A road would be much quicker. Deer Lake is one of the richest parts of this country for wild fowl, plenty of deer. The lake abounds with fish, surrounding creeks abundant with hay, wrote Robertson. And the distance from Deer Lake to Oxford House is no more than 50 miles. End quote. He wrote how William Auld drove 60 native families away from York from 1811 to 1813. He allowed families to starve near the factory, calling them lazy, and as a result, these families have found refuge in with the Canadian traders. He makes further comment on how poorly the natives are treated, especially at York, but everywhere in the Hudson's Bay Company domain. It is cruelty, he writes, but also a short-sighted policy that does the company no good. This wasn't always the case. Samuel Hearn had lasting relationships with Indigenous people. Many, if not most, of the chief factors at the various posts relied heavily on Indigenous people for survival. They became friends. Robertson thinks horned cattle could easily be raised on the marshes at York. He wrote on every subject that could be improved. He worries about the ship and is not sleeping. The talk among officers denouncing Captain MacDonnell and Semple bothers him so much he, quote, reads aloud to drive out their voices. If there was no ship, he planned to go to Montreal through Osnaburg, in other words, through northern Ontario. On September 21st, the ship was in sight. He was anxious for news of his family and his business. Young Dr. Todd came off the boat. Robertson was struggling to know what was next for him. He closed that journal on September 30th, 1816. Robertson wrote in his journal of William Sinclair departing York on October 1st for his wintering grounds. Robertson boarded the Prince of Wales on October 2nd. It was extremely late in the season, and there was doubt they would make it through Hudson Strait. A blue-spotted partridge fell on the ship and then overboard. The men used a boat to save it and brought it back on the ship. Robertson planned to take the bird to England. Perhaps it was some sort of sign for him. The ship finally set sail on October 6th at 10 o'clock in the morning. Most passengers were sick. They battled the ice. Mrs. McLean was on board with her six small children. Her husband was killed in the Seven Oaks Massacre. She was sick and nursing her youngest child. One of the passengers stole her blanket, and the other passengers punished him. They would soon discover Hudson Strait closed with ice. They set into Charlton Sound on October 21st, unable to get through Hudson Strait. God knows where I am, Robertson wrote on the 23rd. He spent the winter at Moose and wrote with great emotion on the state of helpless children who frequently visit him in the hopes of picking up a few scraps. He wrote of Mr. Bewley, the district master at Moose, on March 5, 1817, saying, One of the most cold-blooded men I ever met with, orphans starving while his son wallows in the midst of plenty. He wrote about the man again on March 10th for beating a boy very severely for telling the truth. (laughs) 
Without exception, Robertson's personal journals refer to anyone he encounters in need, denounces poor behavior of one against another, and speaks harshly of cruelty. If you refer to the generally accepted opinion of Colin Robertson on various historical sites, he isn't spoken of in positive terms. I believe George Simpson is to blame for this, and I have something to say about him. George Simpson became the governor of the Northern Region when the Hudson's Bay Company and the Northwest Company merged in 1821, a merger which extended the Hudson's Bay Company monopoly to the Pacific coast. And at that same time, Robertson became chief factor at Norway House and oversaw many other posts in the North. George Simpson wrote about Robertson in his Character Book, which is a subjective record he kept of Hudson's Bay Company officers. Though this was a personal record, it has been used to describe various men of Hudson's Bay Company's service, including Colin Robertson. Simpson wrote in 1832 his impression of Robertson, which was that he was exceedingly vain, large, soft, loosely thrown together, inactive and helpless to infirmity, is full of silly boasting and egotism, rarely deals in plain matters of fact, and his integrity is very questionable. End quote. The character that reveals itself in Robertson's personal journals does not match with Simpson's description one bit. But let's take a closer look at George Simpson. Simpson first signed on with the Hudson's Bay Company in 1821 to assume control of the northern region of the newly merged company. He soon thereafter met Elizabeth, or Betsy, who was the daughter of William Sinclair, born in 1804. I mentioned her in a previous episode when, where Williams served as a surrogate father for a chief and a close friend of his, who it is assumed could father no children. Simpson formed a relationship with Betsy, and she gave birth to a daughter, Maria, on the 10th of February, 1822, at York Factory. Betsy conformed to European practice and had her child baptized by Reverend West a follower of the Church of England, who was determined to, quote, convert the savages and unintelligent, end quote. While having no idea of the spirituality of the people he considered so unworthy, he condemned country marriages, feigning concern for the women and children left behind when the men returned to England at the end of their service to the Hudson's Bay Company. Now, despite West knowing Betsy's name, the baby was recorded as Maria, daughter of George Simpson, Governor Northern Factory, and a half-breed woman, end quote. West's idea of Christianity left much to be desired. Simpson showed Betsy and his child no respect, calling her, quote, his article and my Japan helpmate. He wrote a letter in the fall of 1822 to his assistant, J.G. McTavish, instructing him to, quote, send my damsel to Rock Depot to the care of Thomas Bunn. I do not wish to be troubled with a lady during the busy season. He later wrote again to his assistant, saying, my family concerns I leave entirely to your management. If you can dispose of the lady, it will be satisfactory, as she is an unnecessary and expensive appendage. I see no fun in keeping a woman without enjoying her charms, which my present rambling life does not enable me to do. But if she is unmarketable, I have no wish that she should be a general accommodation shop to all the young bucks at the factory. 
and in addition to her own chastity, a padlock may be useful. Betsy was written up as being promiscuous, yet her only relationship was with George Simpson. She then married Robert Miles, with whom she had ten children. They retired to Brockville and lived out their lives together, buried side by side. Simpson further had a run-in with Thomas Bunn, to whom he had his assistant send Betsy and his child. Thomas Bunn was 55, and Simpson wanted to rid the company of its old servants. He wrote letters to colleagues accusing Thomas of faults and inaccuracies in his work. Thomas was not having this treatment, and he wrote to Simpson in 1822 demanding he not tarnish his good character. There had been letters between them of Simpson's disrespectful treatment of Betsy and her child. Thomas retired to the new Red River settlement and rid himself of dishonorable men he believed Simpson to be. I concur. George Simpson, however, fathered at least 11 children with seven different women, of which he was married to only one. He had two sons with Marguerite Taylor and didn't bother to notify her or make arrangements for his son's futures before he married Frances Ramsey Simpson, his 18-year-old cousin in England, when Simpson was 44. Simpson and Robertson locked horns at the Red River Colony. Robertson was a good husband to his Métis wife with whom he had children. Simpson mocked him for this while Simpson used women for his gratification and then left them. In 1831, Robertson brought his wife to the colony and attempted to introduce her as one would and was met by the racial prejudice of Simpson and his wife Frances, who refused to have Mrs. Robertson in their home. The men quarreled, and it was after that encounter that George Simpson wrote in his character book in 1832 of Robertson in those harsh terms. Yet history takes Simpson's word as the truth of Robertson from Simpson's character book. I am inclined to dismiss the words of a man whose actions speak of his character. George Simpson was knighted by Queen Victoria in 1841 for his support of Arctic exploration, a contradiction if I ever heard one. Unfortunately, the town I grew up near and where I attended high school was named Fort Francis in honor of Frances Ramsey Simpson, the wife of George Simpson. I'm afraid that fact now makes me wince or laugh. I'm not sure which. I'm trying to understand what made Nahoy feel such gratitude toward Colin Robertson and was there a reason, a greater reason than any of us can be aware of, the fact that his name was carried on by my maternal grandfather? The question has lingered in my mind, and I wonder, with no evidence to support my conclusion. But so much of life happens without witness. We must listen to our instincts, those feelings we get in a blink of a moment, as Malcolm Gladwell reminds us in his books. Truth lies in those moments, in those brief, fleeting thoughts. Perhaps Nahoe wanted me to find my way to Colin Robertson so I could reinforce the truth of the Seven Oaks Massacre and shift the blame from the Métis to its rightful owners, the Northwest Company. And perhaps she wanted me to make the point that George Simpson was not an honorable man and we shouldn't be giving any weight of truth to the words he wrote about various men of that time. 
and we should judge him by his actions to know the man he was. I'm not sure I trust the Dictionary of Canadian Biography, finding so many errors in what they wrote about various people I researched, one of which was Colin Robertson. I don't put much faith in the bios written by George Woodcock. Colin Robertson retired from the Hudson's Bay Company in 1840 and died in 1842 in Montreal, having had a stroke a few years earlier. It is said that Mount Robson on the British Columbia-Alberta border is likely to have been named for him. I hope, as Robertson bid this world farewell, he had a sense of having righted some ships along his way, of having called out the behavior we should have no tolerance for. I hope he knew that his kindness mattered. Hi, hi, which means thank you in Cree. Hi, hi for listening. Bye for now.